Hi everyone, my name is Ian McLaughlin, and I'm in the Neuroscience PhD program at the University of Pennsylvania. And today, we're going to chat about something I've spent a majority of the past several years studying. It's a topic of my PhD thesis. I study the neuronal circuitry of anxiety. And, and this is a big, big topic, and one that's probably more interesting than many people probably expect, because in studying anxiety, we can basically explore the history of the human brain, how it got to be so big and diverse, and how it came to enable us to write beautiful literature and music, or paint amazing art, or invent transformative technology. Studying anxiety also quickly brings us to the boundaries of our understanding of human consciousness, like how neuronal circuitry underlying emotion, movement, memory, and future planning collaborate and integrate with one another. So we're going to break this topic down into a couple chunks. First, today, we're going to chat about the big picture, like how we even came to feel things like anxiety and fear, how they're different and, and what they do for us. Then, next time, we'll talk about why it seems that levels of anxiety seem to be heritable from parents on a genetic and a behavioral level, which is, by the way, a very contentious, ongoing debate involving many well-respected scientists who disagree with one another. And we'll explore how problematic levels of anxiety cause people to do things that aren't necessarily in their best interest, like become addicted to drugs or even harm themselves, as well as the latest ideas of how we can therapeutically adjust these signals when they become problematic with psychological and pharmacological treatments, reducing levels of suffering and enhancing the quality of life for, for people who are diagnosed with things like generalized anxiety disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, or, or suffering from addiction. And I'm Bo. I haven't studied the brain very much, but I do have a background in engineering, and I certainly find the brain fascinating. In particular, I like the way when we talk about how the brain works, separating it down into electrical and mechanical ways of describing it so that you know, how it's organized into particular circuits of cells that have particular functions, and they all sort of combine to allow us to do the things that we do. That's right. Uh, something I'm hoping to communicate and, and convince people of over the course of several episodes is that specific components of human consciousness, like certain aspects of what it is to be you, are encoded by specific networks of cells in the brain. Neurons interacting with each other and with another kind of cell called glia every single millisecond. And out of all of that collaboration comes the entirety of your identity, behavior, mind, and predispositions. And given enough time and the right elegant experiments, we will be able to literally map out all of the pathways and structures in the brain, from molecules all the way up to the circuits that they alter, that are necessary for specific facets of consciousness. And in other words, we'll be able to identify the architecture of what it means to be human, from love and hate to depression, addiction, and aggression. Some of these neuronal networks will be simpler than others, and others will be incredibly complicated, involving dozens and dozens of different regions of the brain communicating with one another on a millisecond to several minute to several days timescale. Several days? I thought that the brain works more quickly than that. Like, I thought it was all happening on a millisecond kind of timescale. Well, your perception moment to moment is a byproduct of signaling occurring every millisecond. This kind of time scale is describing signals traveling from one neuron to another and then to many others, or the momentary absence of signaling in those structures. However, larger scale changes also occur. These are the changes that fall under the category of like neuroplasticity. So these are things like changing the number of synapses between two communicating neurons, or, or points of communication between, between brain cells, over time or the insertion or removal of neurotransmitter receptors from those synapses, or, or even the creation of synapses between neurons that weren't even previously communicating with one another. 
all of these changes take more time because they require genes to be activated and deactivated, proteins to be synthesized, and little cellular machines called enzymes to cause various biochemical reactions to occur. These are the changes that need to take place for someone to learn something new, like how to play a musical instrument or speak a new language, or, or learn a new dance or how to play a new sport. They're also what underlie the development of things like addiction and post-traumatic stress disorder. Right, okay, I see. So it's like these really quick, short timescale events are all occurring, and depending on what those events are, they're causing longer-term changes and events that can start to happen and will give you new abilities. That's basically right. And sometimes those abilities are super valuable, right? Like learning how to read. Uh, sometimes they're damaging, though, like in the case of addiction. The point is that those short timescale events will significantly determine the trajectory of the longer-term changes. And those longer-term changes will, in turn, influence subsequent quick events in the future. It's sort of like how we learn to play a sport. You don't just start out as a championship wrestler, right? First, you learn how to crawl. Then, you learn how to walk and, and maybe run. Then you might take a karate course or a wrestling course. And if you happen to focus on that early on in, in development, maybe you get really, really good at wrestling. Because of, of those short-term events that your nervous system experiences because you're taking these wrestling classes, you might develop more sophisticated muscle-controlling brain circuitry over a much longer period, which then might enable you to try out for like a varsity wrestling team in high school. Then, as you're taking those wrestling courses, more short-term signaling occurs because your coach is like teaching you the best strategies to get into dominant positions and tap out your opponent. You're failing sometimes, you're succeeding at other times, right? And, and those sh are the short-term events. But over a longer period, you're growing new synapses and getting rid of useless ones. And you're developing reward circuitry and anxiety circuitry to help you love to play the sport and make better choices while you're wrestling. And, and so those, those millisecond signaling events... They accumulated over months and years to determine, in concert with genetics and other factors, of course, how much you love the sport and how good you are at it. So that sounds really complicated to map out and study. How can we possibly tie these changes that are happening every millisecond together and say that these changes together caused something days or years later? Well, it helps to start out by focusing on, on simple aspects of the brain and then springboard from there. It also helps um, to study the brains of other animals because they're less complicated than human brains. And once we understand how their brains work, we can start to see how the complexity of the human brain layers on top of the simpler foundation of our evolutionary ancestors. So that's why a lot of neuroscientists work with animals like mice and birds and stuff, right? That's exactly right. And, and so, for example, we've largely mapped out the rapid pain reflex circuitry. We, we basically know what's going on when you step on your kids or, or your siblings' Legos, right? It's a simple circuit involving the communication of structures in the peripheral or, or, or basically non-brain parts of the nervous system devoted to sensory perception, pain in, in this case. And if they're strongly activated, like when you step on that sharp Lego without expecting it, those strong pain signals travel to your spinal cord and directly activate a muscular response to then activate the muscles necessary to immediately get you away from that source of danger. This is how you can like, withdraw your hand from something that's extremely hot before you even know how hot it really is. A simpler, more primitive, and, and more evolutionarily ancient part of your uh, nervous system knows all it needs to to get your muscles moving or else risk some serious damage. And when you say ancient and primitive, you're just using these words to talk about how these are circuits that animals with simpler brains than ours also have. Yeah, exactly. A cool aspect to this kind of mapping is that generally speaking, 
The simpler a circuit or behavior in a human, the more evolutionarily ancient it is. You can kind of explore evolutionary history by exploring the human nervous system and comparing it to that of other animals. This is particularly true when it comes to things like what we'd call a pain reflex, right? Though pain isn't experienced the same exact way in different species. But it's also true when it comes to other subtler aspects of our consciousness. Human consciousness is is the most complicated and comprehensive form of consciousness we've ever encountered by leaps and bounds. But other animals absolutely have certain components of our consciousness. They're simpler and, and perhaps lack the depth of our own experiences, but they have similar experiences. Dogs can certainly feel pain, and they can experience joy. They can even learn to be helpless, exhibiting behaviors that, like in a human, we'd probably call depressive. And this is because they have many of the same circuits that we have, but just in a less elaborate form. And it's entirely because we evolved to have all of these circuits, quite likely because they helped us to make better decisions about avoiding predators and getting nutrients, which enabled us to reproduce and care for our our offspring more effectively. Those increases in size and complexity that occurred over the course of primate evolution were what enabled certain areas of the human brain to get larger and more diverse in function. More specifically, this enabled many structures involved in things like determining anxiety or fear levels to integrate a wider range of processes, like more vivid sensory information, like like vision and and, uh, auditory processes, or memories of the past and forecasts of the future, instead of just purely visual information, for example. So this would enable us to make better choices regarding behaviors because we're more sensitive to the features of our environment? Yeah, like imagine you're the CEO of a company like Apple or or Google or Tesla. No problem. (laughs) Right. You're making decisions every day about what technologies and areas of innovation are most likely to be profitable and valuable, right? But you only have so much information at your disposal when you're making those decisions. Like Elon Musk only knows so much about what technology is possible and how much of an investment it's going to require to invent new technologies. If he was able to be aware of all aspects of how profitable and labor-intensive a new potential technology will be, he can make better informed decisions about which ones his companies should focus on to generate the best possible value. So instead of just having an engineering team, he'll have market research teams, financial advisors, operations managers, right, and so on, uh, so that his decisions are better prepared to the best of his ability. Something similar happened while primates were evolving. Our brains evolved to have more complicated and better integrated circuitry associated with evaluating the likelihood that something bad was about to happen in the future, given just limited information, and identifying the best possible behaviors to reduce the probability that that bad thing might occur. So, so this translates to like avoiding walking up to a gigantic Kodiak bear, swimming up to a great white shark, and slapping him in the face. Right. And also subtler things, though, like studying for big tests and consuming healthy diets or caring for our children. And as we age, we get better and better at predicting those negative future events because we have more experiences from which we can draw. So when you're saying subtler aspects of our consciousness, it sounds like you're talking about emotion, right? Like it's more complicated than just pain. That's right. And things like that are the most complicated in humans. Animals have examples of the emotions we feel, but because... As we were evolving, certain areas of our brain grew to be much larger than that of our close evolutionary cousins. We have emotional dimensions that other animals simply just don't access. It's like comparing how fast two people can move. But one person is driving a Ferrari, while the other person is just running. The person driving the Ferrari is capable of going as slow as the person on foot, right? But the person on foot simply cannot access the speeds that the driver can, because he doesn't have the machinery available to him. 
Okay, so what's an example of the part of the brain that's, as you say, primitive from the perspective of evolution? Right. Uh, a great example is a well-known area of the brain called the amygdala, along with, with a greater network of areas that are lesser known in the brain that we call the extended amygdala. This is a very, very ancient network of brain cells, and we see extremely similar examples in all mammals, and even some reptiles and, and even birds, which aren't nearly as genetically similar to us as other primates like chimpanzees are. But all of us humans are in a club of animals that includes all other mammals, from rats and rabbits to polar bears and pumas to lemurs and leopards, right? But it also includes things like reptiles, like iguanas and alligators, and even birds. The club is called the amniotes. And it's because we all develop in eggs that either hang out in a mother's body or are laid on land. Other animals are in the anamniote club, which need to rely on water to lay their eggs because they didn't descend from animals that happened to evolve the ability to make it all work on land. And so all of the amniotes have an amygdala and this extended network? Pretty much. We all have a similar version of the same thing that produces similar behaviors and emotional outputs. In other words, it's like we all have a vehicle of some sort. Humans might be driving a Ferrari, while gorillas have an old Chevy Impala. That's pretty sweet, but perhaps isn't as quick as our Ferrari. And then rats have like a skateboard that can get them from point A to point B, but not nearly as effectively as our Ferrari or the Impala can. And then fish have something like a sled or something that they can ride. But it's not quite as effective as the rat's skateboard of, of an amygdala. So all of us amniotes have something that enables us to benefit from the signaling that the areas of the brain we call the amygdala and the extended amygdala produce. But some of us animals have more complicated and nuanced versions of it than others. And because we all have versions of this circuit, it suggests that this circuit first appeared in the brain of an animal at least 350 million years ago. Wow, that's a pretty long time ago. Yeah, exactly. And, and get this, some scientists even argue that we see similar types of circuitry in specific kinds of fish, which would suggest that it might be even more ancient than that. So is it true then that fish actually feel pain? Because I've been told that they don't. That's actually a pretty contentious debate. Um, they have, you know, again, they have some elements of things that perceive damage to their body, Right. But they don't necessarily have the same kinds of emotional components of pain that humans have. So that's why when you know, people are in chronic pain, they suffer from oftentimes depression or, or high levels of anxiety because our emotional circuitry and our pain-associated circuitry are so thoroughly integrated. This isn't necessarily the same in things like fish. So fish might feel pain, but <laughs> they just can't show it? Well, well, yeah, so they, they certainly don't have the, the musculature to show that they feel pain besides something like an escape reflex, right? So they, they sense damage to their body, right? And we might call that pain. And their behavioral output will be trying to get away from whatever's causing that damage. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they perceive pain in the same way, where pain is super, um, it, it makes us, you know, stressed out and it makes it's us fearful. associated with fear, yeah. Exactly. Okay. Right, so it's a damage signal. It's not necessarily as complicated as, as a depressing, stressful, horrifying signal, right? It's more just, you know, there's this input that's damaging me. I need to get away from this input. But it's not necessarily scary or fearful. That's right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's like a very rudimentary example of, of those things. And so this kind of work, the, the tracing of a complicated circuit all the way back through evolution to its simplest and earliest iterations is extremely valuable to understanding what the more complicated versions do in humans. 
we can study what the simple versions do for behaviors and experiences of simpler animals, right? And that gives us major clues as to what these circuits and structures are contributing to our own consciousness. You can picture it this way. Think of a massive, beautiful, and complicated tapestry that's woven with very fine threads of different colors. Together, the threads form this beautiful picture, right? But you can't quite understand how individual threads are contributing to the bigger picture without investigating the particular colors of the threads and the patterns that they're woven into. So, by studying simpler tapestries with fewer threads, this can help us to break down what each thread or circuit in the brain is contributing to the bigger tapestry or picture of consciousness. Okay, very cool. So why don't we start talking about a particular thread or set of threads? I know your PhD thesis to try to map out the circuitry or these threads that relate to anxiety and addiction. Right, that, that's the goal at least, right? Or, or to help participate in the effort to, to map it out. Okay, so why don't we talk about anxiety a little bit? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. So, so it's a great example of an emotional state that influences everything about your mind in both very subtle ways and also very overt and obvious ways. And also because I've spent several years now wading through the swamp of research into anxiety and addiction, we'll probably need to break it down into a couple of chunks so we don't go on for too, too long. Okay, that makes sense. So tell me what anxiety is why it happens, how it happens, where it <laughs> happens, and how I can get rid of it, right? <laughs> sure, okay. How about we start out with what it is and why it happens for now, and, and we'll see how far we get. <laughs> so anxiety. I don't really like anxiety. It's one of those things that I feel, uh, and I recognize it when I feel it, but it's harder to put into words than it seems it should be. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. So, so simply stated, it's a natural reaction that's part of an emotional response to learning. It takes place after you experience shorter-term, rapid, emotional experiences like pain or, or fear. And what's the difference between anxiety and fear? Yeah, this is a point that I think confuses a lot of people. And it's a point of ongoing research because they're clearly closely related, right? And they're closely related because they emerge from a lot of the same regions of the brain. But there are some circuits that appear to be unique to anxiety that are not necessary for the experience of fear. And so, from a practical perspective, the difference is that fear occurs in the moment. It's what you feel when someone's mugging you, or an unfamiliar big dog is growling at you and foaming at the mouth, right? It's an immediate response to the perception of a threat. Anxiety, on the other hand, is the learning that takes place after you've had those types of experiences, or that takes place after your parents tell you that if you do a certain thing, something bad will happen to you. You can come to expect something bad will happen. And anxiety is the emotional state that you experience to indicate that expectation. So fear is the immediate feeling and anxiety is the expectation that something you know is fearful might happen in the future. Exactly. Anxiety is a natural and useful component of our consciousness. It helps us to learn from things that caused us to suffer in the past by motivating us to take actions and prevent that suffering from occurring in the future. It does this through a variety of mechanisms, but, but ultimately, it makes us more sensitive, or, or what in neuroscience we'd call more sympathetic, to changes in our environment, so that we can more effectively detect sources of danger. More specifically, it, it makes us more likely to experience fear, become aggressive, or, or flee. Like the classic fight-or-flight reaction. Yeah. So, so being in an anxious state, it basically primes us to be more ready to do one of those two things. So that's when anxiety is doing what it's supposed to do. But I rarely hear someone suggest that it's useful by preparing us to avoid negative things in the future. I usually hear it in terms of being a problem for people. 
Yeah, so, so I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that it really only becomes a problem when we can't escape anxiety. And, and for genetic, or environmental, and, and much more likely an interaction between, between the two, right? It's just a constant voice in the back of your mind telling you that disaster is about to strike. I, I've used this metaphor of our mind being like a super complicated chord on a piano or like an organ you might hear in a cathedral. Imagine thousands of notes being played at the same time, generating this beautiful and complicated chord. Each note is a facet of consciousness. Well, one of those notes is anxiety, and depending on what's going on around you, the volume of that particular note relative to the rest of the notes in the chord, it adjusts. So, so when you're just sitting and watching your favorite comedy, right, the anxiety note is, is barely audible, and the other notes are dominating the chord. But then, maybe you start to hear elevated voices somewhere outside your house, not necessarily directed at you, but still a little strange. That anxiety note gets just a little bit louder, right? Your brain is a bit more sensitive to what's going on around you because maybe whatever's causing those people to be yelling might somehow negatively influence you. Like, like maybe there's a riot or a fire or something, right? In a person without an anxiety-associated condition, like PTSD or, or generalized anxiety disorder, once the yelling subsides, that anxiety note becomes quieter again, and the cord readjusts because the source of anxiety has gone away. But in that person with PTSD or generalized anxiety disorder, that note is constantly loud, always drowning out the rest of the chord. And most of the time, it's the only thing your mind can hear because it's so loud. That's when anxiety becomes a problem. So I can only imagine how awful that would be to be in that constant state of anxiety all the time. Yeah, and anxiety is involved in many more aspects of conscious experience than I think a lot of people might expect. Like, it's involved in preparing you for potential danger or challenges that require preparation to avoid an expected bad potential outcome, right? But it's also involved in things like pain perception and and even parenting, in aggression, depression, and addiction. It's a really critical aspect of how we make decisions and learn to navigate the world. And so understanding how exactly it's produced in the brain is going to be extremely valuable to helping people avoid unnecessary suffering as well as enabling them to access the potential innovations and artistic endeavors, the the contributions to society that they might be capable of, but because they experience a deafening level of anxiety because of past trauma, addiction, or, or perhaps an inherited genetic proclivity, they can't realize without therapeutic intervention. So anxiety affecting parenting, I can imagine a lot of people are concerned about that. So do children learn anxiety from their parents? That is a great topic. And it's, it's one that's being hotly researched like today. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, we can get into the nitty gritty details and chat about what we know so far regarding the heritability of anxiety, um, maybe, maybe in, in the next episode, because this is a contentious debate. Um, and it involves a lot of, of new research and things that we don't yet understand about the relationships between the genome, the epigenome that regulates the genome expression and an experience, how all those things interact to determine the likelihood that you'll experience pathological anxiety or functional anxiety. Okay, sounds good. (laughs) 